This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Hello. This week, Impeachment August. Indivisible has teamed up with a number of partner organizations for a national push for impeachment. In light of that, we revisit our interview with Indivisible Co-Executive Director Ezra Levin, who talks about how one of the key things impeachment hearings can do is to create a high-profile platform for laying out everything Trump has done and to establish what's at stake. Levin acknowledges the uncertainty around impeachment, but he believes... In these situations where you're making a choice based on a combination of what's right on policy and what's right on politics, when the politics is unclear, we should just do what's right. That's all ahead, so stay with us. Hey, gang. So uh, before we jump in, I will mention that I just got back from Indivisible's very first gathering of national leaders in Washington, D.C. last weekend. And I have so much to share with you over the next few weeks. Suffice it for now to say that there is a lot that we can be doing and thinking about, not only about how to weaken and ultimately defeat Trump in 2020, but beyond that, to defeat the forces of Trumpism and also to build the sorts of progressive structures and policies that will create a democracy that uplifts and works for us all. Yes, that sounds like a great big lift, and it is, but we can absolutely do this. And like I say, I will be getting into the specifics for you in the weeks to come, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we can check the first box of weakening Trump by talking about impeachment and the impeachment inquiry. So Indivisible has teamed up with a number of partner organizations, as I said, including Move On, Need to Impeach, and Stand Up America for what they are calling Impeachment August. So just to recap where we are, let's review what we know for certain about Trump and his impeachable actions. In addition to Trump abusing his power and stoking racial hatred that has directly contributed to bloodshed and deaths in this country and around the world, the Mueller investigation has indicted 37 people, uncovered 10 potential areas of obstruction, and it found that Trump lied about over 100 secret meetings with Russians. Now, as of this recording on August 15th, 124 members of Congress have stepped forward in favor of an impeachment inquiry into Trump, including all members of the Democratic delegation from here in Washington state. We need to keep the momentum going. So there are a number of things that we can be doing. First, if you are in a district where your member of Congress has not come out in favor of impeachment, this is the time to put pressure on them. Congress is in recess for August, meaning all members of Congress are at home right now. You can go to impeachmentaugust.org to see where your rep is holding a meeting or town hall, so you can go there and speak out. You can also call their offices or schedule an office visit. You know, at a meeting that I had with a staffer in D.C. last weekend, I was told that fence-sitting members of Congress are keeping daily tallies of who calls in for or against impeachment, so your voice really matters right now. Also, you can reach out to people that you may know in other districts with members who haven't come forward on social media or elsewhere and encourage them to do all of this. This is actually a really crucial time for action because once Congress is back in session in September, it will be all too easy for leadership to set aside the issue of impeachment in deference to the presidential election. If you yourself are on the fence about impeachment, take a listen to our interview with Indivisible's co-executive director, Ezra Levin. So as we know, the Trump administration has been stonewalling the several Democratic committees conducting investigations, refusing to produce documents and witnesses. So I started by asking how and why an official impeachment inquiry would compel the administration to act. Currently, the White House is um, trying to block uh, all of the oversight that the House Democrats are trying to do. Now, ultimately, this is going to be decided in the courts. And the courts treat 
uh, subpoenas that are issued from impeachment proceedings differently than they treat uh, other subpoenas. Uh, they, you can think of it as supercharging the subpoenas. So the Democrats are more likely to get better information through impeachment proceedings than they are through other uh, forms of oversight. And so it's in some cases, in, in some ways, just a practical matter. If you want to get information from this White House, which is dedicated to upholding this um, uh, this farcical frame that, that Trump has been completely exonerated in all caps, which is what he tweets, um, if, if you actually want to break through, impeachment proceedings are a really good way to do that just, just purely to get information. And that doesn't even begin to touch on the other aspect of this, which is really about public relations and whether we're doing a good job communicating out the seriousness of the crimes that have been committed. Yeah. Well, so just in terms of the courts, um, the, a previous memo from Indivisible has said, by launching an impeachment inquiry, House Democrats would be able to make clear to the courts that they have a, quote, legitimate legislative purpose for their request. So as you say, supercharging. But yeah, let's get into the PR aspect, because the other argument for starting this process is that Trump is very good at commanding the narrative. And he, as you say, and A.G. Barr have been selling this narrative of the exoneration, all caps, exclamation point. So talk about some of the specific ways that impeachment hearings might be able to help the Democrats shift that narrative. Well, you know, I think yesterday is a really good example of how this plays out in the absence of impeachment. We had uh, John Dean, um, a, a famous actor in the Watergate um, and uh, yeah, former White House counsel under Nixon. Correct. Former White House counsel under Nixon, who made obviously big news in the 70s when he when he testified uh, leading into impeachment proceedings, ultimately in the House. Uh, the Democrats grand plan uh, led by Nancy Pelosi um, in the House was to have John Dean uh, testify again, testify before the House uh, in order to uh, shine a spotlight on exactly what was going on. Um, and if you watched the news coverage on TV yesterday or read the papers today, what would you what what you would find is very, very, very little coverage of John Dean testifying, because the fact of the matter is, until the Democrats are willing to actually use the full power that they have to launch impeachment proceedings, it's going to be very difficult for them to break through in the media environment on one side of this debate. You've got Donald Trump, as we've said, with a very clear message, which is, look, if Democrats thought they had the goods on me, they'd impeach, but they're not. And so I've been exonerated. It fits on a bumper sticker. And on the other side, you have him and Hawing, and you have uh, the Democrats saying simultaneously, this is a constitutional crisis. And also, we want to talk about other stuff. Uh, the, the impeachment debate is fundamentally a public relations debate. It's how can you best communicate out exactly what is going on? And nothing has the same level of clarity as, as impeachment proceedings do. Using impeachment proceedings makes it very clear to the American public exactly what this is all about. Um, and, you know, it's, it's our position that that is necessary. We need to go through an education process because impeachment proceedings are a first step. It is not putting Trump in chains. It is not locking him away in jail uh, or prison. It's not actually convicting him or acquitting him. It's actually not even impeachment itself. When we talk about impeachment proceedings, it's exactly that. It's starting the process to ask the question, should this president be impeached or not? And that's going to take some time. And that time it's time to actually educate the public as to what exactly has happened, 
why is this serious and why do we actually need to hold a trial or do we not need to hold a trial in the Senate? Well, you know, I'm actually glad that you uh, made that distinction between impeachment hearings and impeachment itself because I think it's important. And, you know, you mentioned that John Dean's testimony really didn't get a lot of play. But one suspects that, again, using your supercharged terminology, that impeachment proceedings on TV actually would get a great deal of eyeballs. And this is a bit cynical, but um, the the hearings would be, for want of a better term, good TV. And if there's one thing that Trump understands, it's TV and ratings. So it could really hit him on that turf. I think that's exactly right. I think uh, Donald Trump is extremely good at getting the spotlight on him. And if uh, the Democrats are actually going to hold them accountable, they're going to have to wrest control of the mic somehow. Right. And impeachment proceedings is what they can do. It's the power that they've got. Well, let's talk about some of the arguments that you hear against impeachment. Yeah, and yeah. We'll, we'll just start with the biggest one, which is that no matter what happens in the House, there will likely never be enough votes to convict in the Senate. And so people ask if Trump won't be ultimately removed from office, what's to be gained from having these impeachment hearings? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, you know, I would start out by saying good progressives disagree on this issue, and that's healthy. We ought to be having a debate about this. But one thing that pretty much everybody who's arguing in good faith does not disagree about is the fact that Donald Trump has actually uh, committed crimes that justify impeachment proceedings. You see that from Nancy Pelosi and her allies who say we shouldn't start impeachment proceedings. You see that, obviously, from people who are arguing that we should have impeachment proceedings, including, you know, conservatives like Justin Amash, the Republican from Michigan, right. everybody who's really read the Mueller report digested agrees that that's the case. So that the source of disagreement is really about politics. It's does this help us or hurt us? And I and I don't think that means it's irrelevant. I think it's important to ask that question because you don't want to accidentally cause yourself unnecessary damage and in some way strengthen Trump. So it's a reasonable question to ask, but it is worth engaging in this debate and recognizing at the at the outset that we don't disagree on the facts. We don't disagree that it's the in the U.S. Constitution that's the House's responsibility to impeach a president. Um, that that's their job. Um, what we disagree about is the political consequences. So starting there, yes, you're right. There's some question that the Senate is not only is it um, uh, do we not have. Uh, two thirds necessary in order to convict right now. Uh, we don't have a majority. And so there is some real question of, is he going to get convicted or is he just going to get acquitted? And doesn't that just strengthen his hand? I'd say two things to that. One directly on um, th this question of, is it politically advantageous for the president to be impeached? I would argue that it's not, it's not a radical position to say it is politically bad for presidents to be impeached. Presidents do not want to be impeached. There have been uh, two presidents impeached in American history. Uh, uh, Nixon was not impeached, but he came close to it. Right. Um, you do not want to be in that pantheon, and that's what you want to call it, of presidents who actually gets impeached by the House of Representatives. And you don't want that because then it brands you to the broader public as somebody who deserves to be impeached. Uh, that that alone is a damaging thing to a president. and. Currently, what Trump is able to argue is, well, the Democrats don't have the goods. Right. They don't want to move forward on impeachment because they know this was a witch hunt. They know I've been exonerated. And that's why they're not moving forward. So effectively, we are right now where we would be after a Senate acquittal, um, except the House hasn't even said that he ought to be impeached. I think that leaves us in a really da uh, a dangerous position of strengthening Trump's hand, giving up before we've even uh, played the game. and. To be clear, 
we don't know the future. We don't know how public opinion will change. What we do know is that Trump's approval rating at right approval rating right now and the support for impeachment right now um, is in a better position for us than Nixon's was seen when his impeachment proceedings began. So there's higher support for impeachment proceedings right now than there were under Nixon when impeachment proceedings began. And Trump's approval ratings are lower than Nixon's were when impeachment proceedings began. I'm not saying this means we're going to get to a conviction. I think the Republican Party is very different today than it was 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Uh, but uh, I, I am saying we don't know what the future holds. But so that that's just on the president himself. But I would also push back on what is the political consequence of uh, a trial in the Senate? First of all, we need to we need to recognize that the current slew of Democrats that are in the primary, when you pull them head to head against Trump, they're all doing quite well. They're, uh, Trump is underwater um, when you look at how he would perform head to head against any of these front runners. But taking down Trump is not the only goal in 2020. If the Democrats in 2021 are to have any success passing a budget, passing legislation, appointing judges, appointing secretaries of health and human services or the EPA, they're going to need the Senate. They have to retake the Senate. And that means netting three seats in the Senate next year. And when you look at where those Senate seats are going to come from, They're going to come from Maine or Colorado or Arizona or North Carolina or Iowa. And all of those states, in all of those states, Trump has a negative approval rating. More people disapprove of him than approve of him. And so it would be advantageous to get people like, as you say, Cory Gardner, Susan Collins on the record in a Senate trial. That is exactly right. In purely political terms. What you would do is you would impeach in the House after you get more information. It would go to the Senate. There would be a trial. And you'd have a situation in which somebody like Susan Collins, where Trump representing a state where Trump is very unpopular, would be put in this really tough position. She could vote to acquit this president, vote to acquit this president who is incredibly unpopular in her state. Or she could vote to convict this president and alienate the Tea Party Republicans in her state, the Trump, the Trump Republicans in her state. And that's a tough political position I would like to put her in. I don't want her to be able to hide it behind just uh, high flying words that don't really describe what her actual position is or tweets that that lightly condemn the president while voting for everything that he wants. Uh, I I would like her to actually have to take a stand. And House Democrats have the power to put that question to her and all the other Republicans running for reelection in tough states. And there are clear political upsides to that for us. So this isn't an argument that it's far and away obvious that this is a, a full on upside for Democrats nationally when it comes to retaking the presidency or at the state level when it comes to taking the Senate. But it is clear there are some upsides. Sure. So. Uh, when it comes down to this, you know, I'm a former congressional staffer. When when I look at uh, issues, you can't just analyze issues on policy terms. You've got to look at the political side. That's why I respect these arguments that come from the people who have concerns about impeaching Trump. Uh, I think it's I think it's a valid question. What impact is this going to have politically? But I think anybody looking at this objectively at best would say, well, there are pros and cons. We can see how this could work out in our favor. We could see how this could cut against our chances. And in these situations where you're making a choice based on a combination of what's right on policy and what's right on politics, when the politics is unclear, we should just do what's right. 
when it comes to the policy. And nobody, again, who is debating this issue uh, in good faith argues that Trump does not deserve to be impeached. Everybody, whether it's Pelosi or whether it's uh, uh, Rashida Tlaib, agrees that Trump has committed offenses that deserve impeachment proceedings. Given that we don't know the politics, how it's all going to shake out, let's just do the right thing. Well, you know, Democrats are often accused of being led by polls and, you know, and reading the tea leaves. And there may, in fact, be some advantage simply to, to, to doing the right thing, even politically uh, doing uh, the right thing for its own sake. Um, I do want to kind of pull on the thread of politics just a little bit more and ask yeah, yeah. about another argument that you hear, which, of course, is the example of Bill Clinton, who came away uh, from his impeachment hearings with higher approval ratings uh, than when he started. And, of course, he was acquitted in in the Senate. Uh, and yeah, I think yeah. the, the fear ultimately seems to be that the impeachment process would strengthen Trump just as we're going into the election, which is right when you would not want to strengthen somebody like him. What, what's your response to that? So I'd say two things, and I think it is worth getting into the details here. When you look at the results of the 1998 election, which is normally what people point to when they make this argument, they say, well, uh, look how well Democrats did in the 1998 midterm elections. And that was following the, the impeachment um, and, the, and the failed conviction, the acquittal of Clinton. Um, but when you look at actual uh, uh, the results and the uh, exit polling that was done, the studies of what people were thinking when they were going to the polls, what you find is impeachment actually didn't play a big role in what happened there. Um, in fact, the economy was roaring um, and uh, the Democrats uh, with Clinton at the head of the um, a party got a lot of credit for it. And impeachment wasn't actually factoring into people's decisions when they were uh, choosing who to vote for in the 98 elections. And so uh, it, 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 it is important to get that detail right, because the argument hinges on this idea that there was backlash against Republicans, backlash against the Newt Gingrich faction for uh, launching this illegitimate campaign. Right. Um, so, and the data just doesn't bear that out. Um, and, but then the, the second thing I would say to this is that um, Bill Clinton is not Donald Trump. <laughs> so even if you were to believe that uh, it, because um, Bill Clinton it, got some positive political boost from a, a Republican impeachment proceedings that was highly politicized, even if you believe that, you'd have to be making the argument that uh, this exact same uh, situation playing out for Donald Trump would land the same. And frankly, Bill Clinton lied about getting a blowjob in the White House, and there was a long campaign in order to politicize that fact and try to take him down for that fact. And by the time of impeachment proceedings, the nation was ready to move on um, and didn't want to move uh, forward with the conviction. And it was a politically unpopular move for that reason. I think the much more similar historical analogy is not Bill Clinton. It's either Nixon or Agnew. Um, where Agnew is actively uh, taking uh, kickbacks while he was serving as vice president. He was running a corrupt administration, and Nixon, obviously, we know the story of Watergate. I think that's much more applicable to the situation that the current administration is in, and that's going to be reflected by popular opinion if people are educated to that fact. And I think one thing that is notable right now is, again, you have one side of this debate talking about witch chunks, talking about how Mueller exonerated uh, the president. And then you have the other side, which is 
uh, again, hemming and hawing and doesn't have any, uh, doesn't have a really clear message. I think the fact that public opinion is so far in support of impeachment as it is right now, despite the fact that Democratic leadership isn't there, is really somewhat striking. And once there is actually an argument made, once we're actually having this debate, public opinion is going to move. Uh, because public opinion is not immutable. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because if you look at Nixon's example, public opinion really only began to shift once the impeachment hearings began and evidence was being presented publicly. And so this is one of those instances where, you know, I, th- I think history can really teach us something. I think there's a big opportunity here. And I, I think we ought to be learning from the Watergate experience and acknowledging that most of the time, most people don't want to impeach the president. Most people want to see the president carry out the term, and most people's instinctual reaction would be, no, let's let's just move on from this. And it requires some amount of public education to allow people to grapple with the fact that the president has committed crimes, the president has obstructed justice, and that it is necessary for the health of our democracy to actually carry out the constitutional responsibilities that are given to the House of Representatives. We haven't been having that public education event yet. Because one side has their position, which is the president has been exonerated, which is false, and the other side isn't actually prosecuting the case. So I do think I I look at the example of Nixon and Agnew and I'm encouraged by it. You look at how public opinion moved and not just public opinion among Democrats, but public opinion among Democrats, independents and Republicans, former Nixon supporters. Um, I think there's a, a great podcast on this. Um, on the Agnew experience by uh, Rachel Maddow. Isn't it a great one? It's called Bagman. And I will yeah, provide incredible. a link for that at indivisiblepodcast.org for folks to check out. If you have not listened to it yet, I highly recommend that you do. Yeah, incredible podcast um, on the Agnew experience. I think um, really uh, the Agnew experience, I think, is even more applicable than Nixon um, based on how all of this went down and the, the kind of character that we were dealing with. Um, but yeah, I I take from uh, the 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 historical lesson I take from Watergate is that you if you wait for the entire country to be on board with impeachment before starting impeachment proceedings, you will never get impeachment because the country won't get there unless you engage in the public education effort. And the name of that public education effort is impeachment proceedings. Well, it seems like the uh, rank and file membership of Indivisible is solidly behind you uh, on that. Uh, as I mentioned a couple weeks back, Indivisible sent out a poll to members to get feedback on the issue of impeachment, and those results are now out. And you know, just before we get to them, I will just ask you candidly. So, as we've you know been discussing here, impeachment is not a black and white issue, and I'm wondering if the, the part of the purpose of this survey was to help inform Indivisible's direction on the issue of impeachment. You know, part of it was to inform, part of it was also to gauge just how much people cared about this. And I will say before the Mueller report came out, we did a similar poll and we found that the indivisible groups were actually, there was support for impeachment, but it wasn't overriding. And that really influenced how indivisible national engaged. You, You didn't see us doing big national days of action around impeachment. You didn't see us devoting a lot of resources to impeachment. We were more or less still in kind of a a wait-and-see approach. We wanted to see what came out of the Mueller report. We wanted to see how the broader political environment changed. The the reason why we did this poll after the Mueller statement, after the press conference, was 
because we felt like we were reaching an inflection point. It, it felt like based on what we were hearing anecdotally from the field, based on what we were seeing in the broader political environment, that maybe things had shifted. And that's why our thinking shifted. We, we saw the, the administration stonewalling. We saw Justin Amash, the Republican from Michigan, come out with a really principled statement on why impeachment proceedings ought to begin. We saw uh, Elizabeth Warren and others who had read the Mueller report come out strong in favor of impeachment. And that, that shifted how we were thinking about it. We thought we had actually um, uh, possibly gotten to the point where this was a reasonable next step and what national should be doing. But Indivisible is not, you know, the Ezra Levin organization or the Leah Greenberg organization. Uh, we're we are not leading this. Fundamentally, it's got to be led at the local level. And if we decide something in a room in Washington D.C., it doesn't particularly matter unless folks across the country are actually calling for this as well. And so we we sent out the poll, and we wanted to lay out our thinking, but we also wanted pushback. We wanted people to tell us if they disagreed, if they thought we should be focusing on something else, and we were open to that. And although we provided our thinking, we made the questions pretty open-ended and gave people a chance to say either they thought we shouldn't do impeachment or tell us that they thought maybe we should do impeachment, but it's not a priority, or maybe we should do impeachment, but we think it's going to hurt Democrats. Um, we wanted to get all that information. Well, you got a lot of information. You got some very strong responses. So when you asked, uh, do you think House Democrats should initiate an impeachment investigation into Donald Trump, 80% of respondents said yes. And as you mentioned, that is up from a previous poll. But that's just overwhelming support. Were you surprised the number was that high? Yeah, I was surprised about a few things about this survey. One, um, we got 3,501 responses, I believe, that the when we've um, sent out these polls before over the course of a week, we'll get, you know, somewhere under 1,500 to 1,000 responses. It was that the intensity of the interest in this issue was was pretty overwhelming, 3,500 far and away more than any responses we've got before when we, we've sent out polls like this. Um, the overwhelming support for impeachment, it was 80% in favor, 12% were maybes, uh, and only 8% were noes. Uh, that, is, that is pretty darn uh, <laughs> impressive response. I mean, I think it would be hard to get people to agree on what to name a post office and get 80% of people to agree. <laughs> So uh, when it comes to impeaching the president of the United States to have such near uniform support was pretty impressive. But one of the one of the other pieces uh, that was surprising to me, and I think cut against uh, some of the the narrative that is out there right now, and it's the, it was the focus of a lot of our conversation so far, was what impact is this going to have on Democrats? Right. And what we saw was a, a bare majority, a little over 50 percent, thought it was actually going to help Democrats. Yeah, I will set Only, this up by saying yeah. the question was, do you think impeachment will help hurt or have no political effect on Democrats? And yeah, 50 50 percent said they believed it would help the Democrats. Yeah, I thought um, and I thought that was really interesting in, in part because that is not the national narrative right now. So mm. insofar as people are kind of picking up and then parroting what they read in The New York Times or The Washington, uh, the Wall Street Journal or Politico, um, it, th that's not the result that you would get if you ask D.C. political insiders or you ask Nancy Pelosi's crowd. And yet indivisibles, who are the folks who have been showing up at town halls, who are who are building the wave, who are registering voters and getting out to vote, when you ask them what impact is this going to have in their own communities, uh, they they're, they're, they differ from that national narrative. And I think that's meaningful because when the when the rubber hits the road, 
Nancy Pelosi is a really smart political operator. She knows how to gauge where the crowds are. Um, and she is not going to make decisions based on some national poll. She's not going to make decisions on based what's uh, based on what somebody in Washington, D.C. says. She's going to make decisions based on what happens in the districts that she needs to keep in order to remain Speaker of the House of Representatives. Right. And that means she's looking to what happens in uh, uh, Anthony Brindisi's district in upstate New York or, or Spanberg, Abigail Spanberger's district in Virginia or Angie Craig's district in Minnesota. These districts where there were flips in the House of Representatives from Republican to um, to Democrat Kim Schreier. I was going to mention Kim Schreier in the 8th in yeah. Washington. Yeah, that is exactly right. And so far, um, it's possible it's the case that literally zero of those uh, flipped Republican to Democratic seats have representatives who have come out of impeachment. It might be one. I'm not sure yet, but there's not been a lot of vocal um, endorsement of impeachment yet from those districts. And so therefore, Pelosi is looking at the field and saying, well, sure, I'm hearing from San Francisco and I'm hearing from New York City, but am I hearing from these rural and red districts that I need to keep? And so the, the fact that we're hearing from indivisible groups, not just in blue states, but also in purple states and red states that they want to begin impeachment proceedings, I think that's meaningful. I think that's the real inflection point we've, uh, we're, we're seeing. And uh, the the question on everybody's mind and what people should be looking for is, are there members in those districts getting pressure from indivisible groups and others asking them to come out for impeachment? Because if that is the case, that's what's going to change things. Well, you know, you found that 75 percent of respondents said that they would be willing to invest time and energy into impeachment. And you're tapping into that right away. As you mentioned, you're asking members to urge their representatives to support Rashida Tlaib's impeachment inquiry. There is also a National Day of Action in conjunction with Move On this Saturday, June 15th. And so is the intent behind this day of action that it will impact the national conversation around impeachment? Yeah, I mean, that that is exactly right. Um, I, the theory of change here is that Pelosi will change her opinion if um, she is pushed to change her opinion. There's a, a story about FDR having got into office in uh, 1933. He's just become president. Uh, one of the labor leaders who helped get him there comes in to the Oval Office with a request on a labor issue. Um, and uh, FDR responds, I totally agree. Uh, now make me do it. I think that's where we are right now. I don't yeah. think Nancy Pelosi necessarily opposes impeachment. I think she needs us to make her do it. And so if you are interested in being part of the push to ensure Pelosi actually allows the Judiciary Committee to move forward with impeachment proceedings, the way you do that is by getting your representative to speak up. Um, and I would point out if, if you've got a, a blue state or a blue district representative, that's great. We still need them making the argument. If you've got a red state representative, I would point out that Justin Amash, an arch conservative, is out there saying impeachment proceedings ought to begin. So there's you can use that as cover if you need to. There is no reason why coming out in favor of impeachment proceedings should in any way uh, mar your ability to, to get reelected in that district. But the reason why any of these members uh, are going to come out in favor 
of impeachment is because they're hearing from their constituents. If they're not hearing from their constituents, the safest thing for them to do is to stay on the sidelines. And so, yes, that is exactly the point of the June 15th National Day of Action. Uh, we're hopeful that it's going to have some impact even ahead of time. I think you might see some representatives before those in-district events coming out and saying, you don't have to bother with me. I'm in favor of it. Don't bug me about it. And after the event, if candidates and if uh, sitting members of Congress get this question, I think they're going to have to actually start taking a position. That's going to be healthy. Well, you know, Indivisible led the way uh, quite forcefully in 2018, and uh, there's every indication that they could do so again on this issue. Oh, and hey, before I let you go, I should mention, and uh, Indivisible members may be aware of this, but uh, you and Leah are currently writing a book about Indivisible. That's right. We, we are writing a book. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, it's worth knowing. Lee and I are writing the book. It's being published by Simon & Schuster. Uh, but this isn't a book for us or about us. Uh, 100% of the author's proceeds, all of our advance and any royalties, goes to Indivisible. This is a, a, a book about and for the movement. Um, and the book is about half about the power that Indivisibles have built over the last two and a half years. It's about how they've built up their groups how they've applied that power in fights like over Trump care or over the uh, the border wall fight or over rescinding of DACA. And it's about how they've tried to build up that power further by building a big blue wave and replacing their elected officials. So we tell stories from all over the country and try to draw out specific lessons. So we're telling people, here's how people power is built and how you can be part of it. That's half of the book. And the other half is about the problems facing our democracy. You know, we've talked to indivisible groups across the country about what their priorities are, what they would like to see a future president actually focus on, a future Democratic Congress focus on. And far and away, the number one concern that uh, gets raised up for us is this, this concern that democracy itself is under threat, whether that's in the form of gerrymandering or packing of the Supreme Court or suppression or purging of uh, voters. Um, people are worried that they're these reactionary conservatives are systematically undermining our democracy itself. And we think that's real, and we think there's something that can be done about it. And so the book uh, tries to identify exactly what are these forces that we're up against, and what are the kind of reforms that could be passed in 2021 to right those wrongs and to actually make the democracy truly representative of this diversifying American electorate. And I think there are some pretty exciting ideas in there. They come from all across the um, expert political science advocacy space. Um, and we are releasing the book one year before the 2020 election. So it's coming out in November of this year. And that's intentional. We want this to influence the national debate. We want presidential candidates on the Democratic side to be out democracy in each other, telling us exactly what kind of reforms they are going to implement should they become president. And we hope the book helps uh, push them in that direction. So yes, please uh, pre-order the book. Help us get it on a big uh, bestseller list so that we can get this in front of as many eyeballs as possible. Yeah, absolutely. We will have a link for that for people. Uh, as you said in a recent email, your publisher told you that good authors plug their books. So you did just that. Uh, we want to help you be <laughs> good authors. Ezra Levin is Indivisible's co-executive director. Ezra, as always, thank you so much, man. Thank you. 
And that is it for this week's show. If you missed anything, if you want to catch up on past shows, if you would like links to what we talked about here, you can find all of that at indivisiblepodcast.org. Please subscribe to the show uh, while you are there. If you'd like to get in touch, the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.